0: This is New America Now. Dispatches from the New Majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up What it's like to feel left out.
1: You know, sometimes I feel like this school, the education system, is just so against me that they don't want me here.
0: The quirky selections of this year's San Francisco Latino Film Festival.
1: It's kind of like you're laughing at the violence. You're laughing at the excess. Torture can be funny here. Drugs are funny here.
0: And the trials and tribulations of growing up Greek-American, as told by a Hollywood star.
2: If you didn't have gel in your hair, you weren't good at team sports.
0: All that and more, coming up on New America Now. Immigration reform has been a topic of much conversation and little action in our nation's capital. But while President Obama and federal legislators stake out their positions on the matter, state and local governments are pressing forward with immigration laws of their own. With the latest session of the California state legislature closing last week, a number of immigration bills will be making their way to the governor's desk, where they'll either die or become the law of the land. To give us an update on where California immigration law stands, New America Media's Jacob Simas spoke with Ronald Coleman, statewide policy analyst at the California Immigrant Policy Center.
3: Ronald Coleman, welcome to the show. Thank you. So now that the most recent session of the California state legislature has come to a close, what immigration bills can we expect to see the governor acting on?
4: You know, we have a couple bills that are dealing with checkpoints and impounds. There's other bills that will affect students and financial aid. And there's also... some bills that would affect employment issues as well. Um, there's also some bills that didn't quite make it to the governor's desk that we think will be moving forward next year that we would like legislators to step up and take the lead on as well.
3: Okay. Well, let's, let's focus in on um, what may be happening soon and what uh, Governor Jerry Brown may or may not be signing off on. Uh, you mentioned uh, students. Um, And I think what you're referring to there is the California's version of the DREAM Act. Um, Can you elaborate on that? And how does California's bill, if at all, differentiate from uh, the national DREAM Act uh, policy that some people are pushing for?
4: So uh, you may have heard that we have uh, two DREAM Act bills here in California, AB 130 and AB 131. The governor has already signed AB 130 into law, which would allow students to actually apply for financial aid from non-public sources, but AB 131 is currently sitting on his desk right now, which would allow AB 540 students, including those who are undocumented, to be eligible to participate in all state-administered financial aid programs and all financial aid at both UC, CFU, and also the community colleges across California, to the extent that federal law allows.
3: Mm-hmm. And you said AB 540 students, can you describe what that means for our listeners?
4: 8540 students are those students that are eligible for in-state tuition under state law.
3: So is, is it is it a fair interpretation then of this bill, uh, Ronald, that is it fair to say that any student, uh, if you get into, let's just say, San Francisco State University um, and you're undocumented, then that automatically makes you eligible for U.S. citizenship?
4: No, it does not automatically make you eligible for U.S. citizenship. The California Dream Act only deals with allowing students to access financial aid from non-public sources and also public sources if AB 131 was actually signed into law.
3: You know, the California Immigrant Policy Center is obviously working on... California policy. Um, at the same time, we have a federal government that is um, beginning to formulate basically their position on federal immigration reform. So once the Obama administration and, and other federal legislators get around to taking a certain stance on immigration reform, and once we see some federal legislation, doesn't all of that just trump all of the work that's happening now in California?
4: No, I think what's happening here in California is a good thing. You know, we want to see states begin to take the lead on making sure that these students have the ability to finance their education. We do know that um, immigrants that uh, are able to work and that are able to get highly skilled jobs because of education earn much more than those that cannot. And we do believe that, you know, if California wants to be able to continue to have a strong economy in the future, it is absolutely necessary to make sure that all residents of California have access to education and can pay for it.
3: Uh, moving on to some of the the bills that may be uh, coming up for a signature um, on the governor's desk, Ronald, uh, you mentioned um Checkpoints, vehicle checkpoints and impounds. Now, when people talk about um, immigration reform and immigration legislation, there's been a lot of conversations, frankly, in the media about secure communities, about the E-Verify system of checking, um, you know, the status of employees, about the DREAM Act that we were just discussing. But how do vehicle checkpoints play into the immigration debate?
4: Well, you know, a lot of checkpoints often have been set up in low-income neighborhoods, and unfortunately, they haven't really gotten drunk drivers off the road. They've actually, you know, just been a revenue generator for a lot of cities. Um, Unfortunately, those that do not have driver's licenses because they're ineligible to obtain them, are often the victim of having their car impounded at various checkpoints um, around the state. And what we want to see is for checkpoints to actually get back on track, do what they're supposed to do, make sure that our roads are safe, and really get the drunk drivers off the road.
3: Now, what you're saying, it would imply that um, checkpoints, which traditionally have been, you know, the purpose of, of checkpoints is to stop riders and drivers to, to check for drunk drivers, correct? Um, but have there been documented cases of law enforcement targeting uh, communities with high concentrations of undocumented people? And is that lending itself to the argument that, um, you know, checkpoints are being used for for a purpose that they weren't intended for?
4: Yes. For example, in San Rafael, the majority of the checkpoints across a one to two year period actually targeted Latino neighborhoods and actually resulted in about 121 car impoundments, but only four DUI arrests. So that's definitely something we don't want to see. And to add to that, you know, the city of Bell last year made $770,000 in pounding cars. um, And that was only 2,000 cars. The year before that, they made $834,000. And, you know, we think that DUI checkpoints should serve the purpose uh, for what they're supposed to do. They are supposed to be getting drunk drivers off the road. And we think it's absolutely necessary to get the drivers back on track um, and make sure that we are you know, really pushing for public safety and not pushing for revenue.
3: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, one case where there were 121 car impoundments, but only a handful of uh, drunk driving arrests. So if it's not drunk drivers, what are cars being impounded for?
4: cars are being impounded for the simple fact of a person possibly not having a license. You know, if a driver doesn't have a license, that uh, is considered something that would be a tollable offense. Um, It may be other minor violations. This would not impede an officer from uh, uh, impounding a car if there was some other crime or offense committed that the officer believes that... um, is reasonable to get uh, the driver off the road and to get the car off the road. But what this is is really just to make sure that uh, law enforcement is actually using the checkpoints for what they for what what they're supposed to be for. This is nothing new. Both of the bills that deal with uh, both checkpoints and impounds. Um, are consistent with both the California Supreme Court and Ninth Circuit decisions. And all we're doing is codifying practices that have already been adopted by most public safety, um, public safety offices around the state.
3: Thank you, Ronald. Um, I want to give you a chance to also give us uh, briefly just a recap of some of the other uh, bills that uh, Governor Brown may be making decisions on. Um, can you talk briefly about uh, those additional bills?
4: Yeah, there's definitely an E-Verify bill that is going to the governor's desk as well. Um, there's a couple cities around the state that have actually taken it upon themselves to push ordinance that would require the use of the E-Verify system. And as we know, this is a highly flawed system. It's very costly for businesses to use. And you know, at a time when our economy is really trying to recover, we shouldn't be using electronic systems to force people that are looking for work to check in with the federal government before that they can actually obtain employment.
3: Ronald, what kind of time frame are we looking at generally um, in in terms of, you know, the legislature session is now closed, some of these things are going to the governor. Uh, What's the time frame that you're looking at in terms of when might we see some of these bills either enacted or tossed aside?
4: Well, most of the bills, now that the legislative session is closed, are headed to the governor's desk right now. Uh, The governor has until October 9th to either sign or veto the bills. So we should be seeing some action very soon.
0: Ronald Coleman is a statewide policy analyst at the California Immigrant Policy Center. He spoke with New America Media's Jacob Seamus. You're listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. outside of La Honda, California, there's an alternative juvenile probation program run by the city of San Francisco. It's called Log Cabin Ranch and the mission is to keep young men out of the more punitive detention programs by incarcerating them in a rural setting and providing them with a six to nine month program of counseling, education, and vocational training. For a series we're calling, Listen In at the Log Cabin Ranch, we gave some of the young men microphones and asked them to take us into their lives. Today, we introduce A.J.
5: Man, got a lot on my mind. We haven't had mail in two weeks. Supervisor. They be playing with our mail. I don't know. Supervisor. (laughs) My name is A.J. A.J. Um seventeen Filipino five six hundred and fifty pounds, yeah,'m stressing out right now. It's hard times being in here, like I'd be just thinking too much, like when I'd be on my bed, I'd just be looking up at this at the ceiling, just like why am I here like damn, I should have done something better, doing something different, Think about <clears throat> like where I grew up at, around uh Towerside Projects, I didn't have no choice but to grow up in that lifestyle because everybody was around me. there was like my friends, like my family basically. And if one of them get hurt, I'm going to have to hurt whoever hurt them. So that's how it was to me because ever since my dad died, I've been going downhill. He was like there for me, like always telling me what to do, right, what's right and what's wrong, but ever since he died i just been acting up and just doing whatever I wanted to do. Plus, my mom was barely home, so... Man, I haven't had a phone call for probably last week. And then I was just talking to my girl. She surprised me and said, oh, she's leaving. And I asked her, what you mean you leaving? you leaving me or you... what? And then she said, nah, I'm not leaving you. I'm leaving the country. I'm like, where are you finna go now? It's like, back to the Philippines. For a few months, and then I had two minutes left, and then she was like, all right, just have fun, and I'll see you when you get out. And ended it from there. This is the second time, and she's going to be gone. She gone, she ain't going to be writing me no more and supporting me or anything. I always miss her. Her smile, just love kicking it with her. Because when I'm with her, I feel like I ain't got to worry about nothing. Feel invincible sometimes, so yeah. I mean, it's kind of good at the same time, so I could like you know get to know myself while I'm in here better. Feel me? So I don't have to focus on the relationship. I could just focus on me and what I want to do in life. Focus on my for like my future, what I'm gonna do, what I get out of here, step out of here. Feel me? Just college and working, getting a job, a career. I'm not going back to the neighborhood. I me, I'm just going to get away, like, see what's going to happen, see if there's a better opportunity somewhere out, somewhere out, not in Frisco. I mean, I'll pass by now and then, but I ain't trying to live there no more because I got a lot of drama and, you know, temptations going around. I got family in the Philippines. I was going to go over there, but I don't know yet. Don't know. I'm about to graduate on Monday, so I don't know. I just got a lot in my mind. I got my GED in the last moment, yep. Passed first try. Kind of nervous, because I never like really graduated before. I just moved up like to another grade level. And plus, we never practiced, because we about to uh, graduate in City Hall or the probation school in San Francisco. So, yeah, we're supposed to go to practice today, but they ain't let us. I just I don't know. I don't want to go to graduation for real, to be honest. Because I try to push for a day pass for graduation so I could chill with my family, but they, they ain't letting me have a day pass. So, we just after graduation, we're going to have to come back here or whatever they're going to let us do. I haven't seen my family heck along. I don't know if they're going to be there or not. Plus, I, didn't, I, need a, I need my phone call, and I haven't got my phone call. Man, got a lot on my mind.
0: Listen In at the Log Cabin Ranch was produced for New America Now by Lisa Morehouse, with support from Will Roy and The Beat Within. The program was funded by the Zellerback Family Foundation and the City of San Francisco Probation Department. Now, I'm Shereen Sadigi. Friend us on Facebook. Just search for New America Now Radio. It's that time of year again. Time for the San Francisco Latino Film Festival, which starts this weekend. And this year's spread is just as quirky as last year's. Here to tell us more about the festival and its films is the festival's founder, Lucho Ramirez. Lucho, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So San Francisco has had Latino film festivals off and on for about 30 years now, but they just don't seem to endure. Why is that?
1: Well, that's a really, really difficult question. Uh, But I would say that, yes, there's been a tradition of having Latino film festivals here in San Francisco for well over 30 years, uh, to a large extent, I believe uh, the whole Chicano movement in the late '60s and '70s what prompted uh, having um, a platform for Latino uh, stories, voices, uh, that sort of thing. And I think, like anything, uh, you know, there's life cycles to to organizations, and and I think that's what's happened. The great thing about it is that there's always been people or groups of people that have been interested in maintaining. Uh, a, a presence in, in San Francisco of, of having these opportunities for filmmakers and for the community as well to see themselves in film.
0: So the current reincarnation of of a San San Francisco Latino film festival called Cine Mas is something that you and some people you brought together about three years ago decided um, was a good opportunity to uh, reunite the uh, San Francisco festival.
1: That's right. Um, I brought together a group of about 10 individuals, uh, volunteers, volunteers. Some of them were staffers and a couple of former board members of the previous organization, which I was a part of uh, uh, in some capacity in the development area uh, for about five or six years. And uh, basically, uh, once the previous organization folded, uh, I decided with the team of people to keep it going and saying, you know, we all kind of had a familiarity with uh, putting the event together and Organizing, that uh, we believe we could continue that, and we've been really happy with uh, the results.
0: So film is rather the the cultural medium of our age. It's it's the way that people learn about other cultures, other people, other experiences. And and the festival isn't just attended by Latino Americans. How do how do your non Latino audience members? Um, Sort of take in the the, the films that perhaps they don 't have a direct cultural uh, relationship with
1: I think that in any sort of community or society when you 're talking about art appreciation or cultural appreciation it 's not as if you know you 're only going to be consuming. Art that is totally aligned to whatever your own personal cultural heritage may be. Um, so I think that maybe the moniker of having Latino may be something that it, it'll resonate with someone who identifies with it, but it may also be a, a source of curiosity uh, for those that are not. And I think that you know there's just so so many different layers about uh, about that. I mean, it's not as if uh, we're so disconnected from a Latino identity as a country, you know, whether, you know, a long historical one here in California or Florida or pretty much anywhere in the United States. So uh, it's not a totally foreign concept. And so I think that that's one. And the other thing is like things like uh, extensive travel in Latin America, extensive travel to Mexico, uh, Spanish language as being uh, something that it's not foreign and that we hear it pretty much every day. There's a lot
0: of Latinos in the country.
1: Yeah, and so whether it's uh, someone who is an immigrant who speaks Spanish as a first language or the fact that so many people do speak Spanish, I think that's part of the reason why I'm not so surprised that the festival in itself resonates with people who are not necessarily Latino, but that because they like films that are political or they, life, they like comedies from a different perspective of what's funny. Uh, I think that those are the sorts of things that people seek out. And I think among filmgoers, you know, you don't go to a film festival to see blockbusters per se. You definitely go to a film festival because you appreciate film. And I think whether it's Latino or Jewish, African-American or what have you, uh, you there's going to be that overlap of audiences.
0: Well, a lot of Americans are increasingly familiar with uh, Spanish-language filmmakers in Larritu, You even have people, big people like Almodovar. But what's going on in American Latino filmmaking?
1: That's a very challenging question to answer. I, I think that what I can say f- f- from what was submitted, rather than saying a trend, I think that especially in the United States, the very attention to becoming a filmmaker is so much more challenging. You know, in many ways, uh, a lot of the Latin American films that are coming in have budgets of under $400,000. And yet maybe that's what the cost is with some short films that are done in the U.S. Uh, So we're talking about different uh, financial differences, differences, exactly. So I would say that that's one of the differences. But I think that some of the things that we've seen, uh, again, just sort of based on submissions, based on what we see coming through is that we have some uh, urban stories that are being told. That's what we see more. And it's not necessarily just here, just sort of looking at it um, with uh, uh, casting a wider net with what other Latino film festivals are programming around the country, whether it's New York, Chicago, L.A., uh, is definitely a more urban experience, uh, more stories that are you know, um, talking about what happens in a bigger city. So we're talking about things like violence and crime and that sort of thing since most of our festival was really curated based on submissions some of those films didn't necessarily make their way to our festival yet but we included one film that was like that it was it wasn't necessarily the a high budget film but it's a well made film called Santiago by a Los Angeles filmmaker and um and it made it in and it, just, it that would say i would say if in terms of uh, representative of of what's happening with Latino films I would say that that's probably one of the most emblematic
0: well tell us what Santiago is about
1: well Santiago it's funny that you know at the same time that we want to that part of the mission in part is is uh, to, to put images of Latinos in film that are not necessarily reflective of what we see in the nightly news uh, that's always nice it's always nice <laughs> which is you know getting shot in the head drug dealers what have you uh, but sure enough what is this film about it's a About a filmmaker
0: uh, who gets shot in the head. No, well, I I
1: can't (laughs) tell you what happens, but I would say that uh, there, he's basically uh, shadowing this underworld uh, crime uh, crime gangster type of person. (laughs) But he's very suave and very appealing, and you know. But there's a story. There's a semi side to this whole thing. But so, so in part, even though we we want to go down a path of like, let's say, squeaky clean, you know. Uh, Bill Cosby kind of images of Latinos uh, when it comes to entertainment and filmmaking well you know people are going to come out and see some films that have some of that as well the difference is I guess in a way is that these are films as we're, we're, we're putting ourselves out there whether it's behind the camera or in front and that's but we have difference. control of the image yeah
0: it's, com- it's fr- coming from a Latino film festival and it's made by a Latino
1: right and it's you know there, there, there are other people involved in that film as well but let's just say thematically the, the Actors, producer producers, there, there is a Latino cast overall, but it doesn't come across as a exploitation film. You know, so it's 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 a film definitely to include to entertain. I mean, it's not you know just sort of all about you know being a political and and in in our existence. Uh, you know, people want to be entertained as well, and those are entertaining films, but definitely films that are not necessarily going to be at a movie theater because they probably won't get distribution, but you never know.
0: What what kind of films should we look out for at your festival this year?
1: Well, we love every single film that's there. So it's (laughs) very, I mean, we're small. I mean, that's honestly, uh, that's the difference between having a very, very large festival where you have, um, let's say 200 films Mm -hmm. or, you know, even 80 films. Um, You know, when we have, you know, 20 feature films with, Ten of them being narrative and ten of them being documentaries. There's a little bit of uh, a little bit there for everyone, but I would say on the feature side, um, we ended up getting two films that basically were blockbusters in their own countries, Latin American films. And one of them is called Hell, uh, by straight Lu- to the point. Straight to the point, <laughs> El Infierno, uh, by Luis Estrada, who's a, a very well-known filmmaker from Mexico, and the film is a. Uh, uh, it's epic. It's, it's basically a, a two-and-a-half-hour political satire about Mexico today. Wow. And uh, the premise is uh, a guy gets deported from the U.S., goes back to Mexico to find a totally transformed country, uh, no jobs, nothing, and he wants to live the good life, but can't Things do it. <laughs> can't do it. Everyone and their grandmother is involved in the drug trade. Wow. And it's a comedy, very, very dark comedy. It, gets, it, it starts out funny, but it's, it's kind of like you're laughing at the violence, you're laughing at the excess. Torture can be funny here. Drugs are funny here. And so that film is really, it, it's, it's one of those films that, because Mexico actually does support the film industry. Through taxes, actually, so and that's of,
0: different than in the United yeah, States. It exactly. has an impact on the filmmaker. It right
1: has there. an impact. Mexico had a very strong, has a very strong film tradition, and and of course here in the United States, we've heard of the, the Three Amigos uh, and and what they've done. But in part, for let's just say, for all of those other filmmakers that will be, remain anonymous for the most part, they are able to produce because people, individuals, companies can pay their taxes by supporting a film and so basically there's funding for all sorts of projects and in this film in particular it was also government supported but it was also a blockbuster with you know with uh, a-list mexican actors a uh, very well-known director and thematically it really really struck a chord because we hear here in the united states especially about the headlines of you know beheadings and killings and and uh, hijackings and well this film is kind of casting light on this in in a in a very mexican way
0: An extraordinary range of films. We've got gangster films and documentaries and and political films. Lucho Ramirez, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Sharon.
0: Lucho Ramirez is the founder of the San Francisco Latino Film Festival. to public radio to stay engaged with what's happening in the world around you. News, ideas, music, and culture. That's what we're about here at KALW, and your support makes this unique service available to everyone in this community. Please do your part and make our No Interruption Fall Membership Drive a success with a contribution today at KALW.org or by calling 1-800-525-9917. That day in elementary school when we turn to the pages in our textbook that discuss the civil rights era struggle for equal education. It's a footnote in history for many an eight year old, but today in 2011, history appears to be repeating itself in Arizona as students and educators fight to retain their ethnic studies courses and their futures. Aaron McGuinness is the producer of an award winning feature length documentary called Precious Knowledge which followed the case of the Tucson Unified School District this year as they battled government and public opinion to do what they felt was right. We caught up with her as she was on her way to a film festival screening. Erin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your radio program. So tell us what precious knowledge your new documentary film is all about.
6: Precious Knowledge is a a brand-new documentary. It's about Tucson high school students and their efforts to save their ethnic studies classes. And their ethnic studies classes are right now in the process of being shut down by the state government.
0: So tell us what ethnic studies classes are, because most people don't understand what that means and also what it means to the students and educators who are involved in these classes.
6: Well, ethnic studies uh, classically refers to Pan-Asian studies, African-American studies, Native American studies, and also Mexican-American studies. Our film focuses specifically on Mexican-American studies, and that's because that's what's going on at Tucson. This is also the class specifically that's under attack. Um, When they first started the attack against ethnic studies, it was against all the different ethnic studies, but um, the politicians have now... Um, put their focus onto just Mexican American studies, and for the youth in Tucson, it's a, it's a really tragic and sad story because there's this amazing program at Tucson High School that helps graduate on average 93% of students. And so it's a very successful, very beloved program in our community, and that community is Tucson. Um, and so it's it's very ironic and unfortunate that the government wants to shut it down, and the reason they want to shut I mean, it, it to an audience in San Francisco, it probably sounds kind of outrageous. <laughs> Why would anyone want to shut down a successful Mexican-American studies program? But that's what the film is about. It's, it's sort of looking at questions of identity, what it means to be an American. The politicians are accusing the students of being anti-American of
0: um, studying a
6: a pedagogy that helps to overthrow the American government and all kinds of myths and things that are just absolutely not true.
0: It's interesting, Erin, that uh, when we talk about statistics and and the impact of these uh, ethnic studies programs, the the Mexican-American studies program in particular that your film follows at the Tucson Unified School District, is that prior to this program's inception in 1997, uh, the dropout rate for Hispanics was nearly 50%. And you just made a reference to the fact that that dropout rate is totally different now.
6: Well, that's right. I mean, the national average for um, dropout of the Mexican-American cohort is still really high, um, in some places over 50%, which is really tragic. There are also very high dropout rates for Native American youth and also African-American youth. So, um, our young people of color are really um not being served well by the public education system and um yeah so there, this is a program that has is very innovative um very exciting that helps um mexican american youth graduate from high school and also helps encourage them to go to college so it goes beyond just graduating from high school but gives them kind of a a desire for precious knowledge, a desire to, to learn and expand their horizons, and also to get very involved in their community. So it's a very holistic program, and um, we spent a year in the class. I have a lot of experience with what I'm talking about, plus my son was a student in um, the Mexican-American studies classes last year, so I know a lot about it from you know, an observer and also as a, a parent.
0: So tell us what these courses teach. What what is the curriculum that is being taught at the Tucson Unified School District's uh, Mexican American Studies course?
6: They teach a social justice curriculum and also a culturally compassionate curriculum. It's kind of too hard to explain really briefly what all that encompasses, but basically one of the things that they do is that they help the kids learn about their own culture and their own history. And for most of the youth at Tucson high, it's a uh, Mexican American history. And so they learn, you know, who they are, where they came from. And this, you know, this model could be used for African American youth, all, all kinds of youth. Um, it's not, you know, at the expense of other cultures, it's at the, you know, they, they try to celebrate all cultures and to, to love and respect all cultures, but, It's innovative because a lot of um, curriculums are still centered around uh, what I would call Western European focus. And so, I mean, an example could be in a Latino literature class, instead of studying um, Shakespeare, Moby Dick, you know, some of the classics, you would read Chicano authors like Sandra Cisneros or just something that maybe would speak to a Mexican American youth more than um, something like Moby Dick, which, you know, some kids would. Have it be difficult to get into a book like that. So they just use techniques and um, a curriculum that, that meets the kids where they're at. And um, there's actually a really famous academic in San Francisco called Dr. Andrade, Dr. Jeffrey Andrade, who. You feature is, him in um, the film,
0: actually. The, Dr. Andrade well, is featured a, in the film as well. he has a cameo in the film. And
6: he is someone who also just works really, really hard to engage at, you know, what traditionally called at-risk youth for youth who are not really being served by the, the current curriculum. But I just want to add that I think any curriculum, I mean, it doesn't have to be necessarily be this curriculum, but any curriculum that, that helps engage youth, I think, should be um, you know celebrated, replicated, um, and there are amazing teachers all over the United States. So. Um, it's not just going on in Tucson. There's a lot of places where there's some excellent teaching going on.
0: So, Erin, the the question that that I would have, and I think our listeners would have, is how is this kind of curriculum a problem? Why would the Tucson Unified School District have a problem with this kind of curriculum, and and why would the government of the the state of Arizona have a problem with this curriculum?
6: Well, the root of the truth is that in Arizona, and I'm sure in other parts of the United States, um, there's a lot of issues surrounding immigration. Um, and usually it's immigrants from Mexico or other Latin American countries. And so sadly, if you're a politician who's perceived to be as tough on Mexicans or tough on Mexican Americans, um, you can win elections. And so therefore they have kind of used this anti-immigrant, anti-Latino rhetoric to shut down a program. And it's it doesn't really have anything to do with immigration or but one of the main proponents of shutting down the program is our current attorney general his name is tom horn and one of his campaign slogans was to stop la raza and so it's not really even about student achievement it's more about appearing to be tough on mexican americans and it's still working in the state of arizona if you're tough on mexican americans then you win election.
0: Well, when you mention Tom Horn, uh, we have mm-hmm. to re- refer our audience to his feature performance in, in the documentary. He's a big part of mm-hmm. of your film. And I want to get to some of the Comments that he makes in your film because they're they're pretty shocking. They sort of take us back to uh, an era in American history that many of us today uh, did not experience and and didn't think that we would experience. I want to I want to repeat some of the quotes that that I heard in the film that then Superintendent Tom Horn made. He is now, as you said, the Attorney General of the State of Arizona. At one point in the film, he. Is speaking at a rally and he says, quote, the chanting behind us illustrates the rudeness that they teach their kids. He later goes on in that same segment to say, quote, there is a primitive part in them that is tribal. And he also refers throughout the film to such things as uh, revolutionary indoctrination, infusion of racial ideas, and on and on. How did he get away with speaking like that in Arizona, in, in the United States today?
6: Um, as I mentioned, my son was a, a student in the Mexican American Studies program. He just started college. I'm very proud of him. He just wrote a paper on active and passive racism, and he actually got me to kind of look at Some of the issues of our film and some of the rhetoric that Tom Horn and others use um, against Mexican Americans. And um, I would say some of that rhetoric is what you would call examples of active racism. And um, we see the active racism less often than we did in the past because, you know, people frown upon it. But what's, I think, kind of all over the place still is what you call the passive racism. And that's just that people let language like this fly. And I think that we can find examples of passive racism wherever there are people of color.
0: Aaron, I want to play a clip from your film. And it's quite indicative of uh, what the students feel about this, their La Raza programs, their, their Hispanic studies programs.
1: I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've, I've hated education. You know, sometimes I feel like this school, the education system is just so against me that they don't want me here, that they want me to just drop out.
0: Erin, what are your thoughts when you hear a student speak that way?
6: Well, this is Gilbert Esparza, one of the young people who is, um has a voice in our film. We worked really, really hard to make sure that the students had a voice in this particular project. And it's um, as a parent, as a member of the community, I find this heartbreaking. Um, one statistic that kind of brought me to this project is statistic that people who build prisons look at second grade data or demographics of like however many Latino or African American students you have in the second grade class, and from that, they can determine how many prison cells to build. And that just, that really, really upsets me, you know, to think that people who build prisons are looking at second graders to figure that out, and so... I think Gilbert, you know, when he, when he tells you about it, when you get to hear Gilbert talk about it, it really, really hits home. It really shows the reality of what, what someone like Gilbert has to go through just to graduate from high school, the structural challenges that he faces.
0: Aaron McGinnis, thank you so much for joining us today. I wish you all the best as you take your documentary film, Precious Knowledge, around the festival circuit.
6: Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to um, hear about Precious Knowledge.
0: Erin McGuinness is the producer of Precious Knowledge, a new feature-length documentary about the attempt to ban the ethnic studies curriculum in the state of Arizona. The film will be featured in this year's San Francisco Latino Film Festival, which starts this weekend. Listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. It's not easy growing up Greek American. The Americans call you Greek and the Greeks call you American. But comedian Dimitri Martin did it and survived to tell the tale. Martin, a former correspondent for Jon Stewart's Daily Show, and writer for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, is a bona fide star in his own right these days, with specials on Comedy Central and starring roles in Hollywood blockbusters like the current film Contagion. He'll be performing at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco this weekend, and joins us today to talk Greek and Greek-Americans. Welcome to the show, Dimitri.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So I heard that you're Greek-American. Do you speak Greek?
2: I speak a little bit of Greek. Um, Both of my parents were born in America, both born in Brooklyn, but spoke Greek at home. And I went to what was called Greek school when I was a child. That was at church. Um, One of the, the ladies at church, my friend's mom, taught us once a week how to speak Greek. We didn't really speak it at home. My parents ended up using Greek as kind of a secret language when they wanted to say things in front of us that we couldn't understand. So So I kind of speak it, but not really.
0: So do you I mean do you understand it or you just can say a few words when you need to say something? What what is it like?
2: I understand it pretty well. If someone speaks Greek to me, I can usually respond in English. And uh the further I get from my hometown and my home church, probably the the less my abilities hold you know it's kind of waning but still i think i could if i hear people speaking greek i can kind of figure out what they're
0: saying so your father is a greek orthodox priest it's it's nice that the orthodox priests aren't sworn to celibacy by the way but what was it like growing up with a priest for a father
2: yes that's it's an interesting rule in the greek orthodox church because you can get married before you're ordained but if you're single and you go through the ordination ceremony, then you have to stay single. So it's a kind of weird one-way street where there's celibacy if you make a certain kind of a choice. But my father married my mom before he did that final ceremony. For me, growing up, it's interesting in retrospect, especially as a comedian, I look at it more from a performance perspective, I guess. I think of my father standing on the altar, standing behind the pulpit every Sunday at the end of the service, and talking. He, he spoke extemporaneously, mostly. He was, I think it turns out, he passed away in 1994, so I'm speaking about him in the past tense, but he was, I think, a very good public speaker. He was a very natural, comfortable person in front of large groups of people. So my recollections of having a father as a priest, and it's probably because I'm a comedian, are mostly based in him as a performer. I think also that's because the service was in large part performed, if that's the right word, in archaic Greek. So most of us, especially the kids, didn't know what he was talking about or the choir was singing. I could say the words, but I didn't know what they meant. So there wasn't a lot of heavy doctrine in my head. I didn't know a lot about the Bible or anything. I just knew, oh, right, now they walk around the table, and there he goes with a lantern. I see, you know, and now he's doing this thing. It's kind of a more of a cultural exercise, I think.
0: So that's interesting that your father's speaking, his his Sunday preaching uh, at at the church, actually had an impact on your understanding of what performance is like.
2: I think so. I think, you know, he was very anecdotal. I'd be in the altar. I was an altar boy until I went to college. I would, you know, go to church every Sunday with my dad. We'd drive together early, and he'd go set up, and there'd be some old Greek guy there who would help him. And I'd put on my robe and have a little lantern. Some of the other all sports would come and hang out. You get to sit in the back. You don't have to sit in the main part of the congregation. You know, it's kind of a bonus. Say, oh, cool, I can hang out with these guys during the service. But the upshot was when my father gave his sermon, I was behind the pulpit looking out at the crowd. So I had almost a backstage view of, let's call it the show or the gig there. <laughs>
0: the, the church I, gig. It's a church
2: gig. It's <laughs> my dad was doing a tight 25 every Sunday or half hour, whatever he was doing but I could see on the pulpit just an envelope or something with a couple of words he scratched onto it, or nothing. And I thought, at the time, I guess I thought that's natural. Okay, that's his job. You know, I go and I'll talk to everybody. Only, <clears throat> excuse me, when I got older, did I realized, wow, not everybody can do that. That's that's definitely a talent that he could speak so fluidly, emotionally, comfortably without having a prepared speech. It was only later, after my father passed away, I went to church and I saw a different priest. And the guy had a typed-up, double-spaced speech that he was turning the pages through and delivering, looking up and looking down and everything. And I thought, oh, wait, this, is, this doesn't seem right. And now, years later, I realized, oh, yeah, that was part of what made him special. Certainly for me, as his son. And he was funny. He got laughs. He did well, you know. He was a he was a funny person.
0: Your dad was cool, and you didn't even know it till later. So I've got a I've got a random question for you. Nothing to do with you at all. But what are yeah. your, what are your thoughts on thirty year olds with bowl cut hairstyles?
2: Um, you know it depends. I personally, I have the haircut now that I had. It turns out I, when I was maybe six, seven, eight, somewhere around there, um, and I remember what, in the eighties. Even my mom grief about it, saying, why did you give me that haircut? She said, at the time, kids had this kind of Buster Brown haircut. Or whatever. I said, oh, man, I wanted to have spiked hair, and this is what I had in seventh, eighth grade into high school. I got older, and I realized I don't want to put stuff in my hair anymore. I was like, and I'm from New Jersey, so this was a totally acceptable thing, guys putting stuff in their hair. And you can see on television now, it's a big
0: Jersey Shore um, would, would suggest that you have to have stuff in your hair.
2: And Jersey Shore is exactly where I'm from. It's not even like <laughs> I'm from another part of the state. That is precisely where I grew up. So that show for me is a touchstone. I can say to people, look over there. If you understand, if you're wondering things about me, that's where I come from. So you must so, have been
0: ostracized if you didn't grow up having gel in your hair in the Jersey Shore.
2: Yes. If, if you didn't have gel in your hair, you weren't good at team sports. Um, there's, a, there's a real tough guy aesthetic to the town that I'm from. Uh, a lot of not that tough guys trying to be tough and some tough guys trying to show how tough they are whatever. But the, the social value of any given guy, at least in my public school, was determined mostly by things like football and your car. And Now I realize that that's kind of behind the times, I think. When I see other places that I, you know, I got to spend time living in Manhattan and stuff. But anyway, I'd say, in terms of a bowl haircut, you know, I discovered the Beatles a lot later in life. And I love the Beatles, still my favorite band. And I like a lot of 60s culture and music and uh, some 70s stuff, too. You know, I still feel like I'm discovering aspects of that era culturally. So I think that coupled with not wanting to put stuff in my hair got me right into my haircut. And the fact that I don't have to do anything besides take a shower each day for my hair is a pretty nice thing. So it Saves time.
0: That's great that you're saving time with your haircut. So I've got a question for you about your new film. I, I caught the film Contagion this weekend. Had no idea that you were in it, and it wasn't until halfway through the film that I I recognized you. I mean, that's a pretty serious role for you. It's not your usual sh- it's yeah. not your usual shtick, is it?
2: No, yeah, that was that was a coup for me. I was excited that I got to be in a movie like that.
0: But you didn't have a lot of lines.
2: No, I only had, I might be in it for a total of a minute if you put all my scenes together. Yeah, I was thrilled, you know. To get to work with Steven Soderbergh, to me, it was a thrill. If I ever got to work with him again, great. If I don't, that's totally cool, too. Just being on that set was really educational, you know. I want to direct things that I write eventually. Hopefully, that'll work out. And those opportunities are like school. I get to go and pay attention. I might be on camera for a very small portion of the days that I'm working, but the rest of the time I get to absorb the culture of the set, how they set things up, how they're moving through their shots, how much coverage he's getting, those kinds of, you know, the writers on set. Are they collaborating? Are they tweaking things? How much improvisation is there? It's really cool to absorb a lot of that kind of stuff. And then to get work is great too, but I like it as a student.
0: Wow. So you, you satisfied some of your academic urges by writing a new book recently. It's, it's, it has a really complicated title. What's your book called again?
2: Yes. This is a book by Dimitri Martin.
0: I mean, how, how many hours and weeks and months did you spend trying to come up with a title like that?
2: Well, what's funny is the original working title when I got the deal to do that book was, this is a book, because I had a stand-up CD called These Are Jokes. And then I did a stand-up special called Person. I just called it Demetri Martin Person. I was trying to keep things basic and simple. It's kind of an introduction of myself to the larger audience. By the time I finished the book, it was you know, two years later because I was working on the TV show. So I, I kept getting extensions. And eventually I wrote the book that turned out to be last summer. And then I wanted to fiddle around with the title. I thought the title could be, This book is, which is a sentence. I thought that would be kind of awkward and interesting. Or um, then I was going to do the title, maybe it's one of the essays, like Megaphone. It's one of the essays it was called Megaphone and other essays by Dimitri Martin or something. But by then the publisher, they said, we really like this as a book, you know. We've gotten used to that, so we think it should just be that. I said, okay. And because it's not a novel and I don't really have an overarching theme, I thought this as a book would work pretty well as a first book.
0: So this is your fir- first book, and it's and it's all about introducing Dimitri Martin to the world. What what does the world need to know, first and foremost, about Dimitri Martin?
2: What it needs to know is probably very little, but what I'd like <laughs> it to know is that I, that I make things that I want some people to buy so I can not have to get a day job. If I can keep my streak going, then I'm in good shape. But, you know, with the book there, I felt like I had an opportunity to try to put my sensibility, my comedy, into written form and have the jokes or the bits, the stories communicate to a reader or or communicate those things to a reader in a very more intimate kind of one-on-one exchange. You know what I'm trying to say? I guess I'm saying with stand-up, I get to talk in front of a group of people, and I love it, but that form is specific. That's a specific medium, and people have to go to this place and sit there and be quiet and listen to you. And your voice is amplified. When you're reading a book, you know, the conditions are really different. So it's it's cool to think about translating the same sensibility into that totally different form.
0: How does your family feel about the fact that you ended up in comedy? I mean you went you graduated from Yale, you got accepted to Harvard Law but didn't go, and you ended up in comedy. Is that is that cool with a Greek American family?
2: If I'm the sample, the answer is no. Yeah, it's not <laughs> cool at all. And it's like my friend told me something funny once, another Greek guy that I grew up with at my church, who is a lawyer now, and he went to Yale too. We were these two guys. He's three years younger than I am. That was my long shot college. I got in, I was thrilled, and I went. And then three years later, he was from a neighboring town, but the same church. He got to go to Yale too, so it was like, wow, another one. Wow, we did it, you know? So anyway, years later, we were talking, and he said, he heard this thing from somebody, and it was that laborers want their kids to be merchants or business people. Business people want their kids to be professionals. Professionals want their kids to be academics, professors and academics want their kids to be artists and artists don't care if their kids are laborers or not. They can be anything. And I thought that was such an interesting circle to think about generationally for any immigrant community in in America. um, If you skip one of the rungs on that wheel, then you're probably going to have some trouble with your family, is what I find. So I went, my family, um, we have a diner, so we're primarily merchants. My father was a priest. So that's a professional, but there's kind of an overlap there. But I think the identity of my larger family is merchant, which means I should be, according to that scale, I should be professional. I should have been a lawyer. Like I was right on track, and people were proud of me. And then I said, oops, I'm going to skip that. And then I jumped over to artists. And everybody thought, what are you What are you doing? You can't do that. And just for the first time in my life, I had very vocal, uh, direct disapproval from people whose approval I had the whole time. And I didn't even realize how much approval I was getting until they took it away. And I said, wait, this feels weird.
0: But are they but, happy now? I mean, you're pretty successful in the field that you ended up in.
2: I think so. You know, lately, I've been telling people, and I don't know if it's because I moved to California, but... I, I feel like, and I don't know if you've had this experience or other folks you've talked to, for my community, my immediate community, like my extended family, feels like it went from kind of making fun of me and laughing at my hubris, which is a very Greek thing, right? All the ancient Greek plays, but laughing at my, my ambition, like, oh, you want to be a comedian? Okay, Mr. Showbiz, here we go. Um And then going from kind of laughing at me, not quite supporting me, to resenting me. Like if I had some success, then them saying, oh, look who thinks he's Mr. Hollywood now. And I go back to New Jersey, so (laughs) I'm thinking, did I get a, a, was there anything in between? Did I get a window of just, hey, good job?
0: You know, that's great.
2: Yeah. Yeah, pat on the back. But the nice thing is, I think once you can liberate yourself from other people's approval and their expectations as much as it's possible, then it seems like a, a more enjoyable ride, you know, then I'm not looking for it so much anyway.
0: Dimitri Martin, thank you so much for joining us today on New America Now. Thanks for having me. Dimitri Martin is a Greek-American comedian whose new book is called This is a Book by Dimitri Martin. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority, Interethnic international and intergenerational news for the New America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi.